that should do it. All right. I'm sorry to be uh, so <laughs> technocratically, uh, you know, not advanced, I should say. There's Lene. Thank you for joining us, everyone. I hope, uh, I don't know who's on the phone. I'm going to guess maybe Ann, Ann uh, well, I, I know her as Ann Fairbanks, so I can't remember. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you. And today, because of the theme of our um, our services over the, you know, over this fall, we decided, uh, Greg Allen Pickett and Damon Heitman and I, that we would begin the, uh, the fall season with a look at the theme, which is the God of love. Uh, in November, I will be working an, on um, the, the book of Matthew, and we'll be concluding the book of Matthew in the lectionary series. But uh, Greg's sermons over the next uh, several weeks are going to be about an aspect of, of God's love. And uh, in our discussions, we thought, well, you know, let's look at um, how this idea developed historically, because we all know from uh, especially John, that, that verse that we all learned, at least I did as a kid, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Those that do not love do not know God, for God is love. Um, that is a common understanding of at least the Presbyterian Church, at least our Presbyterian Church. But you know probably better than anyone that there are churches out there who want to focus on uh, the wrath of God. And there are certainly places in Scripture where God's wrath is, uh, is predominant. Uh, mostly in the Old Testament. Uh, not entirely so. Of course, we see you know, uh, texts in the New Testament that focus on um, uh, you know, apocalyptic uh, end of the world and things along those lines. But the Old Testament really features a God who, who you don't want to cross. You don't poke that bear. You know what I mean? And so I thought we would look at this apparent schizophrenia, if you will, uh, in scripture and, and try to understand how it is that we arrived at uh, this understanding of God of, uh, of the God of love. And what does that mean exactly? How can the God of love be reconciled with the God of wrath? Uh, I was at a, and, and eventually by, by week three, I want to talk about how this, uh, how this has an effect on our theory of atonement. In other words, how is it that Jesus' death on the cross brings about a reconciliation and a salvation uh, to the world? The way that that uh, atonement theory has been developed over the last 2,000 years, in many ways, focuses on a God of wrath as much as it does on a God of love. And there have been many uh, theologians recently who have challenged that idea of atonement, that, you know, that this understanding of, of, of Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice that must appease the justice and the wrath of God uh, is misguided. So uh, we'll get a chance to look at that, but I thought we'd start on a journey because when we look at uh, the Bible, uh, it, it's really important to, to, to note right from the start uh, what we are uh, talking about and where we are talking about. Um, I want to establish from the beginning that the Bible is a people, I, I usually, I used to say this so often in class, I can't remember it now, but a people's testimony to their experience of the liberating acts of God in history. And I like to uh, compare the journey that we're going to be on to a marriage in many ways. Um, and, and that metaphor is used throughout the Old Testament. God chooses Israel, the people of Israel, as a marriage partner. There is a prophet by the name of Hosea who, who, who really makes, who, who develops this metaphor uh, to great effect. Um, but you know, those of you who are married, uh, you know that um, 
marriage is a journey. The person you married, however many, maybe 30 years ago, maybe even five years ago, you are uh, not looking at the same person uh, because, you know, today that you, that this person was five years ago, because, you know, you've, you've learned so much about them. You've, you've uh, developed uh, an understanding of each other. You know each other's strengths, you know each other's weaknesses, you've been through trials together, you've been through happy times. Uh, the same is true of, of the nation of Israel. And so the story that we're going to look at, when we look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament together, and I should probably refer to them as the First Testament and the Second Testament, or the, newer, or the New Testament and the Newer Testament, uh, a lot of people are having problems with the idea of the Old Testament, that, that term, simply because it, it assumes that uh, there's some sort of supersessionism, as it's called, that, that, that Christianity has somehow superseded everything that went, uh, that took place and everyth everything of importance in the Old Testament. And that is uh, not correct at all. We need to know the Old Testament, the First Testament. Uh, the 39 books that precede the New Testament, uh, we need to know that and know it well because we really cannot understand uh, a book by picking up and reading it, you know, two-thirds of the way through, uh, which is what many people do in the New Testament. Nor can we uh, understand this epic journey by reading the Bible the way that many uh, today like to read the Bible, and that is to start with an assumption about what our church believes or what we believe, and then try to find verses in the Bible that uphold those assumptions. Uh, my grandmother used to call things like that bass ackwards, you know. <laughs> so, um, because basically what you're doing is using the Bible as a tool to support sometimes your own misguided assumptions about God's relationship with the world and Jesus' uh, uh, understanding, or our understanding of Jesus uh, and his death and resurrection. And so in this conversation that we're going to have, we're not going to be doing any, a lot of cherry picking. We're going to try to start from the beginning and move all the way through uh, to the God of love. Um, but you will see in my subtitle here, from, tri from Tribal God to Universal Savior. Uh, it is important to note that as we look at this story and how it emerges, it takes place in a context in which, uh, this is the ancient Near East, in which each of these cities along the way, Babylon, for example, or the Nineveh in the present, in what was known at that time as Assyria, uh, Syria, the Damascus, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the, uh, the Ammonites, all these small little city-states had their own gods. Uh, and a lot of them were pretty much variations on the same theme, but it was a highly polytheistic uh, context, a highly, highly polytheistic geography. And this is the context in which the story of Israel is going to develop. And from the beginning, Israel is not, I know this is going to uh, probably surprise a, a lot of you, but Israel is not a monotheistic religious tradition. Our theology now, 2,000 years after the fact, tells us it was, but when we look at the historical context and we look at some of the, uh, the verses that are still in scripture, uh, it's pretty clear that the Israelites uh, saw their God as one God among many. Even God himself sees himself as one God among many. Have you ever thought about this? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have what? No other gods before me. What? What? So God sees other gods out there. That's not monotheism, is it? I mean, that's, we're, we're talking about a tradition that develops in a, in a very um, dynamic and uh, polytheistic culture. So 
Israel begins not as a monotheistic religion, but as what we might call a henotheistic religion. Uh, not yet monotheistic. Monotheistic means there's only one God and there are no others. But in the year that we're going to begin, around 1230 BCE, the idea was henotheistic. There is one God that we worship, but there are other gods out there that are constantly drawing our attention away from our worship of our one God. We worship one God, but we recognize there are many gods out there. Now, in the journey we're going to take, we're going to see how Israel um, recognizes in this marriage, as any marriage should, you know, <laughs> that there is just one God. And all of the others are, they're, cannot even be attractive to them because they simply do not exist. I would hope marriages move in that direction. Uh, so let me stop and see. I, I do this periodically for those of you who are uh, not familiar with the, the Bible study and the way we've done this on Zoom. Uh, oh man, Lene, I love that background you've got. Holy cow. It looks like it's coming right out of your hair, you know? <laughs> Great. Uh, let me see if there are any questions that you all have. I, when we do this, I like to ask you to mute yourselves, but if you want to ask a question, uh, please unmute and just jump in. Any? <clears throat> well, let's, let's remind ourselves that the area that we're, we're working with here, this is geography, and a lot of people don't have a, a clear sense of just how big this area is, but you can, I've overlapped the uh, state of Texas on this area known as the ancient Near East. Uh, if we were to begin our story with Abraham, uh, as uh, the Bible does, uh, he comes into his own in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, very close to a, a town called Uruk, uh, in which the, uh, the great Epic of Gilgamesh was written. Along the Tigris and Euphrates River here, uh, you have the city of Babylon. You have another group of people uh, up to the north of that known as the Assyrians. Uh, these people, this whole area is known as Mesopotamia, literally the land between the rivers. And this kind of crescent that we've got here is known as the Fertile Crescent. Uh, a lot of trade happening along these routes, uh, and, but at the same time, a lot of city-states developing, Babylon being probably the most famous, but Nineveh as well, Aleppo, which is still with us today, Damascus, Sir, uh, Syria. Jerusalem uh, at this time is, uh, is, in the time that we're looking at, 1230 BCE, really doesn't exist yet. But down here in Egypt, this is probably the powerhouse of the, uh, the time period we're looking at. Uh, the Egyptians were monotheistic gods. Uh, they were monotheistic people. They worshiped a god uh, called Ra, uh, and uh, they were governed by pharaohs who were God incarnate themselves. And our story picks up. The first place where we can have a historical sense of this group of people called the Hebrews is somewhere around 1230 BCE. Uh, so any, any questions about our map here? Mediterranean Basin, Babylon, Ur. Let's begin right here in Egypt. But let's talk a little bit about our methodology. Uh, when we're studying the Bible, especially in the Presbyterian tradition, we try to employ what, what might be called the tools of literary science uh, as best as possible. This often gets us into to problems if we are people who believe that uh, we should read the Bible literally, that it somehow fell from heaven right out of the, you know, the hands of God, uh, having been written by God himself, uh, if we assume that there are no contradictions, that there are no, um, you know, discrepancies, um, we, you know, we'll be tripping over ourselves if we take that uh, 
if we take the, what we call the historical critical method seriously and start applying it to the Bible, assuming that the Bible is, um, uh, as people say, infallible and, and, and inerrant. It has no mistakes in it. Uh, and, you know, we live in such a dichotomous culture where, you know, it has to be one way or the other. You have to be a Republican or you have to be a Democrat. You have to drink Coke. You have to drink Pepsi, Burger King or McDonald's. You know, uh, we, we live in a culture that, that pretty much is dualistic in that respect. But there's no reason why we can't employ the tools of science to the documents of faith and arrive at an understanding that is at once fulfilling and accurate uh, to our own faith development. So when we, when we look at studying scripture, uh, we're not going to assume that we need to read it literally. Uh, because if we do that, we run into problems. I think I've mentioned to you before, uh, if you're a literalist, then you have to acknowledge a discrepancy between the New Testament Gospels, uh, who one Gospel, the Gospel of John, says that Jesus is crucified on one day, called the Day of Preparation, and the other three Gospels say that he's crucified on the Day of Passover. Now, if God writes this, and this is, you know, supposed to be without conflict, then you would think that God would know what day his own son died, right? It's, but they're two different days. So, so we can't rely upon the, the gospel as a historical record, so to speak. Even the idea of history as we know it is a modern idea that is trying to uh, align events according to the facts um, you know, from various perspectives and trying to get to what actually happened. No one is thinking about this as they're writing the Bible. What they are thinking about, and this upsets people, is, is a kind of mythology. Even Herodotus, the great you know, historian, uh, was, was writing more of mythology, not tell us what happened, but tell us why they happened in the grand scheme of our understanding of the universe. And so um, I've heard many preachers say, oh, the Bible is the most accurate historical text there is. It was written, and I don't all I can think is that they're not reading the narrative and not reading it carefully. Uh, for example, let's say the Old Testament, how does Samuel, you know, the king, or excuse me, Saul, how did Saul die in 1 Samuel? Well, at the end of 1 Samuel, it's one way, and the, the beginning of 2 Samuel, it's another way. Uh, so the historical critical method is going to ask questions of the text. They are going to ask, uh, Historians uh, and, and theologians like myself, and of course, Greg and Damon went to seminary and were trained in this method. They're going to ask questions like, okay, who wrote this text? And what were the reasons for it being written? The why? To whom was the text written? And when is it most likely that the text was written? Uh, let me give you an example of why when is important here. Uh, there, is a, <laughs> there is a story in Genesis that uh, there, there's a certain king who uh, gives Abraham, or, or actually I think the description is of Abraham's wealth. He had so many thousands of goats and so many thousands of, you know, uh, this, and then he had so many thousands of camels. Camels. Uh, we think that Abraham, if Abraham existed at all, probably lived around 2000 BCE. The story of his migration seemed to reflect that time period, what we know from the archeology span of that time period. But we know that the story of Abraham was not written in 2000 BCE. Archeology span tells us that camels are not in the ancient, or are, are not in the area that we know of as Palestine or Israel today until about the time of Solomon. So when Genesis says that Abraham owned, what, 2,000 camels, what can we say about when that text was written? If, you know, if there were people around writing when Abraham was around who were literate, uh, 
you know, what would they have been writing on? How would they have been writing? What this says is that text was probably written after the time of King Solomon, when we know that camels were in the area. Somebody likened this to um, uh, somebody saying, okay, in the 16th century, this guy was so wealthy uh, that he had uh, 5,000 semi-trucks you know, in, living in the 16th century. I mean, it's, it's an anachronistic reference that's being made in the Bible. So when we see discrepancies like that, we have to say to ourselves, uh, you know, when was, this, when was this text written and what, what were the circumstances? So let me offer the opportunity for somebody to get upset with me about that. Anybody have a comment? Please unmute. I will try to see if I see anybody uh, trying to jump in. Okay, I guess we're okay with that, good. Well, what's the historical context? And you know, other things like the genre of literature that we're looking at. So um, for example, uh, you know, there, there's poetry, there is historical narrative, there is a dialogue that happens and those genres don't often intermingle with each other. They're usually one genre or the next. And so when we read the Old Testament, we can see evidence that a lot of, of, of traditions at one time in Israel's history, and people think it's, or scholars think it's around the fifth of the fourth century BCE, in the Old Testament, brought all of these themes together and edited them into the text that we have. So that's a, and I will always introduce any class I teach about the Bible with this understanding of how we're reading the Bible, uh, because it's the foundation upon where we're going to go next. So if there are no questions, checking my time here, making sure I want to give everyone opportunity to drive to the, um, uh, to the service at 1030 in the park. So our story begins in Egypt. Well, why are, not, why are we not beginning with Abraham? You know, I thought he was the father of you know, this, this group of people known as the Israelites, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Um, we are beginning with the place historically where we can actually be certain there is a group of people living in circumstances that are reflected in the Bible that are corroborated by outside sources. And there is a reference around, uh, well, around the 12th century BCE of a group known as Apiru. And if you know how Semitic languages work, um, this looks very similar to the word Hebrew. Uh, I know it doesn't look that way to us, but the sounds are very similar. Uh, Semitic languages are basically written with just consonants and you have to fill in the vowels. So when you read Hebrew, uh, or you know, if you're gonna read Aramaic or you're gonna read uh, Ugaritic, uh, you're just basically seeing consonants. So the word PR and what would be the U there and Hebrew look very similar. And, and what's more interesting about this is it's pretty clear that this term means dusty ones, the bad people, the slaves. Uh, and this is the place where we're pretty sure uh, that this group known as Apiru are living under the circumstances of slavery in, um, in Egypt. And we know from our text in scripture that they, uh, are, they escape from the slavery. But the thing about this is, is that as they're escaping from slavery, there's nobody that's writing down what's happening. They were, they were slaves, they were illiterate. I mean, the only people who were literate at this time would have been you know, the Egyptian uh, priests. Uh, uh, you know, in 1250 BCE, uh, there's very little understanding among the common people of, of writing. So we're talking about oral traditions. So if that story was not written down while it was being, in, you know, carried out, then when was it written down? 
Well, we know that most of the Old Testament appears, because of the forms of literature we see in the Old Testament, appears to have been oral tradition for a very long time, at least to about 1,000. How do we know it was oral tradition before it was written down? Because we can see certain cues, certain clues in the way the text is narrated. Uh, you might, you know, you know, if you ever tried to uh, memorize Shakespeare, you know the cadence of Shakespeare and certain types of alliteration that help you with that type of, uh, you know, memory. So there are these mnemonic devices uh, that help you to remember this oral tradition, and we can see those still written in the text today. So when we read that in 2020 uh, of the Common Era, we can say to ourselves, just by the structure of this text, it looks as if this began as an oral tradition and then was written down as a, uh, as a written tradition. Okay, well, we see certain oral traditions in the Old Testament. The tradition that we're going to be working with primarily, and this, unfortunately, I'm gonna to have to skip over two, uh, two historical narratives that precede this. But in Israel's history, there was a time, well, let me, let me back up and just remind you, the Israelites, so the story goes, are, they come out of Egypt, they settle in the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. There they live for about 200 years as a uh, confederated group of tribes until eventually they, they need a king. A king, and this king is, of course, uh, first Saul, now I'm in first Samuel, and then King David. And when King David becomes king, he establishes Jerusalem as his capital. Uh, this creates problems with the, uh, you know, the 12 tribes, because all of a sudden, those 12 tribes who used to be equal now have someone who is above them, and a whole hierarchical structure has been established in that, you know, city-state. Now the king is taxing his, you know, his brothers and sisters, put together things like armies to build palaces. Eventually, Solomon will build a temple, and this is going to create real dissension among the Israelites from about 1,000 all the way to about 600 BCE. Uh, this distinction between an aristocratic class and the people below, you know, the, uh, the proletariat, you might say, the, uh, the common people. This was not the ideal that they believed had been established in the original covenant. Well, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I'm going to back up. Around 620, there is a king by the name of Josiah. And he wants, he, knowing that his predecessors, the kings of Israel, kings of Judah, I should say, but more specifically, uh, who uh, have preceded him, have really made a, a, a mess of things. They have turned their backs away from the covenant uh, that was you know, their original constitution, They've gone after and worshiped idols. They have taxed the people that, you know, and the people of Israel are completely destitute. And so King Josiah has his court priests, uh, you know, his scholars in the temple write a new history of Israel. Now, they don't just make it up, but remember, they're going to draw on the oral traditions of stories that have been told. Uh, from the past, and this story comes to be known as the Deuteronomistic history, excuse me, uh, Deutero meaning second, nomos meaning law. This is the second story about how the law is given to the people of Israel. There was a first story that was told, and it was told in the book of Exodus, and that is a, a kind of a third-person narrative of Moses drawing the people out of Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai and receiving the, you know, the Ten Commandments. But the book of Deuteronomy is an elaboration on that very same story. But this time, it's told from the, the perspective of Moses. 
Moses, who is the great prophet, who among Jews today is the prophet, right? Uh, and now we have something that is being uh, presented to the people. And it, it was presented in a kind of uh, shifty way, you might say. Uh, they were cleaning out the temple, and lo and behold, they found this scroll. Hey, and it's this book of Deuteronomy, and it's got this whole history, and it's told from Moses' perspective. Uh, that's what Josiah was telling the people, but he had his court, you know, uh, scholars writing this book. Uh, but the important thing about it was, is that he wanted to lend some legitimacy to the constitution, the covenant that he was trying to uphold as a king. So if you can create laws that come directly from the mouth of Moses himself, not create laws, if you can reiterate laws that come directly from the mouth of Moses itself, himself, it establishes a kind of legitimacy. And so when we read the Deuteronomistic history, we see a God who is rather um, powerful. At the time that the history is being written, King Josiah is not a powerful king. He is trying to give the people um, uh, he's trying to give the people some sense of hope because the Babylonians are on the rise against the Assyrians, and both of these city-states have completely just wiped out, you know, uh, Jerusalem and its outlying areas. But King Josiah is trying to, you know, rejuvenate things. And so this story that he writes is one that is uh, meant to give the people hope. So all of this to say, King Josiah is shaping the narrative. He's not making up stories. He's drawing on oral traditions of the people's experience of the liberating acts of God in history. He's not making things up, but he is shaping it in the way to try to give the people a sense of the power of their God. And with this, it's unfortunate that he he emphasizes a God that takes on some of the attributes of some of the aggressive tribal gods of, let's say, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Hittites. God is presented as another war god. And so if you look at the book of um, Joshua, for example, part of the Deuteronomistic history, God tells the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and completely wipe out everybody right? Uh, well, this is what Josiah is trying to emphasize to his people in 600 BCE of what God is capable of. Our God is just as powerful as the gods of Babylon, as the gods of the, the Assyrians. So this is the nuance that he is adding to uh, this story. Now, I know all of this is very confusing because I've studied it for 30 years, and it's just now that I'm getting a sense of it. So I'm sure <laughs> that I'm confusing a lot of you. I think the point I want to make in this is that when we read about the God of, of powerful acts in the Old Testament, it has a politically, the narrative we're reading is a narrative written that has politically expedient purposes in mind. Our God is just as powerful as the rest of the gods. Our God is just as um, aggressive and warlike and able to overwhelm the other gods. Because when wars happened, and we're talking about a warring time, when wars happened in the ancient Near East, what happened down on the plane of history was just a reflection of what was happening in the skies above. So as the Israelites are fighting the Assyrians, that means the God of Israel is fighting the God of the Assyrians in the heavens above. It's, you know, a reflection of what's happening in the heavenly realm, the realm of meaning. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to check my time. Oh boy, we don't have much time. Um, please let me know what your thoughts are on this. Have I completely confused you? No. Okay. I will. Keep... 
Yeah, go ahead. Um, if I hear you correctly, then most of what occurred before 600 BC is based on hearsay? No, not hearsay. Or, or, oral tradition. Oral tradition. And I do want to make this... What's, what's the difference here? All right, I do want to make this very clear because oral tradition is really what even today most of human history up to this point has been based on. And, and that is a retelling of the great deeds of our forebears, of how we came to be in this place. Native Americans would have uh, certain shamans that would uh, keep the stories alive. The difference is that the, the intent of the stories was not to recount historical events. In other words, this happened on this day at this time, and uh, you know, 350 people were killed, and it, it, it doesn't care about the historical events. What it cares about is the meaning of those events. What is meaningful about those? How was God acting in order to bring us to this point? That's not history. History is an academic uh, scholarly pursuit that, try, that is scientific, that tries to collect evidence, have that evidence corroborated by uh, a secondary source, and establish what happens. A historian today doesn't care about meaning. What was the meaning of the Holocaust? Historians aren't asking that question. I, I, that's probably too uh, elaborate of an example. Historians are trying to figure out, you know, how all of this came about and, you know, what were the, the forces of history that allowed it to happen? What, but the meaning of it? No, they're not doing that. People telling more oral histories are trying to recount events that, you know, go back into their history and explain why they are meaningful why they give a sense of identity to who we are as a people. Uh, and the events aren't always told the same way, unfortunately, because that's not the important thing. But there are means by which these oral traditions are told, whereas um, you're not just making it up and it's not just hearsay. These stories are passed down from one storyteller to the other, there are certain cadences that one follows in telling the story. And so that, um, you know, there's a continuity uh, between the past and the present. But we're not talking about history. And I know this is very difficult. It was difficult for me when I first heard about it in college. It's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I mean, these things happened. Um, that's not what the Bible is concerned about. They, the Bible is concerned about the meaning of events uh, that took place based upon a people's recollection of the oral history. So does that help, Rich? Well, it does. It's, it, I, I guess then it's saying it's more about why it's happening. Yes, yes. How is God working through this? Okay. Um, and, and this is the, the beauty of the Bible because... <clears throat> You know, those who like to, to, to choose little verses here and there, they're actually reading the Bible scientifically, and it's not a science document, right? They're looking for evidence, right? That supports a pre-held theory that they have, you know, well, this is what God is like, this is what God is like. But if we read the whole 2,000-year narrative, and then we add 2,000 years of our own theology on top of that, what a beautiful testament to human striving to understand meaning in our lives that, you know, at times like these, especially, sometimes gets to be meaningless. And what an act of faith to keep holding on to the idea that God is working through all of these things, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the Babylonian captivity, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem, whether it's the Holocaust or all of those things, the, you know, it's holding on to that thread of faith that says, my oral tradition 
my forebears tell me that we have uh, encountered situations like this before, and God has been faithful in the midst of that. It, it adds a whole new dimension to just a, a bare facts kind of history. So let's get to the place where the oral tradition begins, unless there are other questions. I'm looking down the line here, none. Uh, the oral tradition begins in Egypt. That's a place where we have a foothold in history. And the story that is told, you might know, of course, is this is where, I thought I had a previous slide before that. Yes, I did. Um, we're not starting with Abraham. Uh, the story begins in Egypt with Moses, you know, being called by God to, uh, to go and into, Israel, in, into Egypt, where Moses has just escaped. He's an outlaw, basically. The one thing that's beautiful about the Bible is most of the people we're talking about are outlaws. <laughs> they're, they're not, you know, they're on the run from the powers that be. And Moses was one of those. And God says, hey, you're going back. Uh, and Moses says, hey, you're a burning bush. Why should I listen to you? And God says, well, I'm going to tell you my name. And this is a, a, a wonderful, intimate gesture on, in the marriage that we've been talking about. To know another's name is to know someone intimately. And God says to Moses, I want you to go and tell the people in Egypt that they've forgotten about me. And to, to give them a better sense of who I am, I want to tell you my name. And my name is, well, it's a, a term that cannot be mentioned in, in Hebrew, but we know it as Yahweh. And if you can see this little image I have, I love Marc Chagall. He's a Jewish painter from the early 20th century. Uh, but you can see this tetragrammaton, as it's called, the four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He, up at the top of the burning bush. And it basically means I am. Mark Buber, a Jewish uh, theologian, says it really means I will be whatever I will be. And you know, the sound of that yod heh vav heh, Yahweh, is, is a breathy sound, almost as if to say, I am the breath that enlivens all things. I am the source of, of life, and I want you to go and tell people my name, bring them into the desert to worship me. Of course, Pharaoh does not allow the people to do that. I mean, these are these are the lowest of the low. These are expendable, you know, uh, uh, slaves. But God has chosen them for a purpose. This is the meaning of the story. Pharaoh won't let them go. And of course, we are given uh, insights into who this God is. First of all, this is a God of power who is on the par with the God of the Egyptians. We look at the 10 plagues, right? frogs, boils, you know, and finally the, uh, uh, the death of the firstborn son. A God of liberation, a God of compassion, as the people are, uh, you know, going through the desert, even though they're a bunch of panty wasters, right? They're just, even though they are so, you know, we want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. I mean, even there we had something to eat. God causes manna to fall from heaven. He gives them quail. He gives them water to drink. But finally, God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and says, Here, here's where the marriage uh, really becomes uh, official. I'm going to give you the wedding ring now. You know, up until this point, we've just been courting you people of Israel, courting through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But now... You've lost sight of our relationship. You are enslaved in Egypt. You were once you know, in high positions, but now you are enslaved. But all of that's going to change for the better, but there's gonna be a price to it. You are going to be given responsibilities that will, in enacting them, will show to you what it truly means to be human. I'm gonna give you 10 commandments. Real easy for a slave to remember, right? A slave who works with his hands daily and looks at his fingers. Every time you look at those hands, I want you to think of the 10 responsibilities you have. 
for them are responsibilities towards me, God, your husband, you know. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not worship any graven images. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The next six, it's too bad they couldn't be five and five, but they aren't. The next six, and the, the fifth one, by the way, is what Jewish rabbis say is the most difficult uh, to up uphold. Honor your father and mother that your days in the land might be uh, long and prosperous. Honor your father and mother. Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not uh, bear false witness. Uh, those are responsibilities that you have to each other. So there's this wonderful vertical dimension, responsibilities to God, and a vertical or a, a horizontal dimension, responsibilities to others. This is the this is the constitution of the people of Israel. This constitutes what Israel is. And it's given to them by this God, this God of power, of liberation, of compassion, and a God who requires responsibility. And it's summarized really beautifully in this document uh, that we know of as Deuteronomy. Um, and it's Deuteronomy 28. And it's a kind of if-then situation. If you do this, this is what will happen. If you don't do this, this is what is going to happen. <clears throat> and remember, even though the kernel of this covenant was probably present in the experience of the people in the desert in 1250 BCE, the text is being written 600 years later by King Josiah. And listen to how this goes. The first part of it is beautiful. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise before you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you and your barns and in all that you undertake. People in the desert have barns, apparently. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. But, all right, now that's a nice little, these are the blessings. And I'm, I can give you the, the, uh, the verses that follow, but they're basically a chapter long. <laughs> but if you do not obey, obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all of his commandments and decrees, which I, Moses, am commanding you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And it goes on forever. These curses are unbelievable. I've, I've just written a couple here. Uh, the Lord will send disaster, panic, and frustration in everything you attempt to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. Because you have forsaken me, the Lord will make pestilence cling to you until it has consumed you off the land that you are entering to possess. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, with ulcers, scurvy, and itch, of which you cannot be held, uh, healed, and on and on and on. Read it for yourself. It's overwhelming. Is this the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt just to torture us as human beings who are fallible and can never, you know, uphold any of this? The question we as historical critical scholars have to ask, was this text of the curses that God would uh, visit upon the people politically expedient for King Josiah? It was important for King Josiah to bring his people under the blanket, you might say, under the, the dome of a covenant that they had lost sight of. If they didn't do this, they were gonna to fall to the Babylonians. So follow the covenant, you know. Do not worship the idols you've been worshiping. And you know, this, these uh, curses are reminiscent of a lot of the uh, early prophets, you know, especially Amos. But did Josiah's lust for power, and it was a, you know, he wanted to be a king like just the Babylonian kings, did it eclipse our understanding 
that we find in Exodus of this God of liberation and compassion. Uh, and many would, would say, yes, it did. Uh, that God is a jealous God and God is angry, but does God visit these curses upon God's own people? Uh, it certainly puts a sense of fear in us. And that is a fear that uh, carries itself through uh, the Old Testament. Now, I know it's 10 minutes after, it's about 10.08. I know some of you want to get to the uh, service, so I'm going to give you that opportunity. Um, I don't think I have another slide here. But this pestilence and destruction, this is Peter Bruegel, the elder, by the way, uh, uh, painting in the late 16th century. As Roman Catholics were destroying the Huguenots in France and other places, uh, this is the kind of pestilence that, and uh, warfare and destruction that uh, jo Josiah uh, has in mind. Um, if you've never seen Bruegel's paintings, they, uh, he, he's one who experienced this kind of thing in the first place. Yes, Will. Thank you. Just, I'm just saying thank you. We're going to oh. leave. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Let me stop and see if there are any questions. We'll come back to this next Sunday. Um, any questions? There's Anne and Carolyn and Kenton. I don't know who's on the phone. But. Um, okay, Dan, I, Dan I, don't, I, I don't really have a question. I just, have, yeah. um, I just have a comment. Uh -huh. You said you you said that you really like the work of Chagall. Yeah. Well, you need well. to go to the Chagall. You you need to go to the Chagall Museum in Nice on the French Riviera. Oh my! That's goodness. all I'm going to yeah. say. You need yeah. to go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he's. Uh, yeah. I I I will always put my favorite artists in here because I think they're relevant to us. So. Uh, yes, I've, I've heard that that's uh, fantastic. Um, uh, I do want to give people, it is incredible. I do want to give people an opportunity to um, get to the service. When we come back on Sunday, we'll pick up where we left off. We'll be looking at the next, uh, we'll be looking at an experience that the Israelites have in which they come to believe that God is punishing them. But then there are some among the rabbis, or I should call them, some among the priests who, who, who start to take a different perspective on this. And that is a turning point towards this God of love that we are moving towards in the New Testament. This is complex material, and I do not have enough time to, to do it all, but um, uh, hopefully we've gotten some insight uh, from this today. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. Goodness. Yeah. I'm going to uh, stop recording and okay. uh, we'll be on our way. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Bye. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Oh, look at.